Hello, and welcome to Lost in Redonda. My name is Tom Flynn. I'm a uh, former bookseller, uh, recently publicist for and other stories publishing out of the UK. And um, <laughs> avid reader would be one way of putting it, I suppose. Um, and I'm joined by Lori Feathers. Hi, I'm Lori Feathers. Um, I am co-host of the podcast Across the Pond. I'm a bookstore owner in Dallas, Texas, and also the book buyer there. Um, I am chair of a new literary prize for small publishers, the Republic of Consciousness Prize, and just a big reader overall. And Tom, it's really, it's really wonderful to join you on this, on this new joint venture we have. Yeah, I'm really quite excited. Um, so Lori and I worked together uh, while I was at Another Stories, um, putting um, uh, one of my peop- one of my authors, uh, and I think we'll ha- you should have another one coming up soon um, onto her podcast uh, across the pond. Uh, she also uh, hosted um, uh, the author Robin McLean um, at uh, her store in Terrabang. Um, yeah, um, so that's how we kind of really cross paths. Um, we also have a lot of friends in common in the uh, book selling world, and. Um, yeah, the the idea Lori proposed the idea of us working on a podcast together, and we, you know, noodled some ideas around, and um, now we have this, which you might be wondering, what what is this? And <laughs> frankly, that's a question we're somewhat asking ourselves as well. But um, it, sort of the long and short of it is, uh, this is a podcast uh, about um, books, but more specifically, uh, books that we think folks need to be paying a good deal, bit, good bit more attention to, um, in particular, uh, backlist titles. Um, so the structurally, what we'll be doing is uh, each podcast, um, the first portion, uh, will be a discussion uh, about a title that one of us suggested to the other. Um, on today's podcast, we'll be talking about John Crow's Devil, uh, the debut novel from um, Marlon James. Uh, this was Lori's suggestion to me. Um, and yeah, we'll just be digging into important books that we think folks should talk about uh, quite a bit more. Um, often translation, often from small presses, um, and often ones that we think um, have kind of fallen by the wayside to a certain degree. And um, yeah, I'm I'm excited for it. Uh, we've actually already recorded the conversation around John Crow's Devil, and I have to say it was some of the most fun I've had talking about a book in a while. So I hope all of y'all listening will agree as well. Um, and then the back half will be a discussion, a longer discussion, a multi-episode discussion of uh, the writer Javier Marias. Um, yeah. I think that we wanted to kind of um, highlight um, backlist titles, uh, Tom, and, and by backlist titles, if, if you're not familiar with the bookseller term, um, it just means, uh, older books. It doesn't have to be ancient books, but, you know, books that aren't on the front table of the bookstore anymore. Um, but those books often get relegated to not even being on the shelf. They go out of print, frankly. And many times, um, they, they just really shouldn't. There's so many great books that um, just because of the publishing cycle and how many books are published per year, you can't get to all of them. And so they fall by the wayside. They don't get the big uh, publicity or they're not widely reviewed, perhaps, or maybe they were, but for some reason, they've just gone off people's radar screen. I think this particularly happens sometimes when an author... Um, 
you know, isn't constantly coming up with, you know, a, a novel every three or four years or more frequently that sometimes they, you forget about them. Um, we all do. And there are just some many, many gems out there that really deserve to be talked about more. Um, and some of those are ones like John Crow's Devil by Marlon James that have just kind of been eclipsed by his later works and the great publicity and acclaim that they've received. Um, but we thought it'd be fun just to draw attention for listeners to some of those books that, that we think deserve another look. Yeah. And as bookstore people, and I mean, I was uh, a buyer uh, in my previous life, life at, at different stores. Um, we know that uh, backlist forms in many ways, the spine of the store. I mean, you can go into a bookstore and, and look at what books you have on the shelf and get a real sense of not only the, the taste of the buyer and the booksellers there, but also the, the interest of the community. It's very reflective in a good store. It's very reflective of what the customers want to see, but also want what the booksellers want to put in front of them. And, you know, bookselling being uh, retail, there is often a decent bit of turnover um, within a store. So you actually get multiple generations of booksellers and their tastes reflected in a store. And it really tells the, the story of a bookstore and, and the story, of, a, a certain story of publishing. And yeah, I mean, Lori and I are two people who very much value backlist and the serendipity that can happen in a store as you wander their shelves and their stacks. And uh, this is one of the ways, a good way, we think, of us, uh, you know, engaging with that and kind of expressing our love for it. So I'm, and, you know, to be frank, Lori and I have um, somewhat, it seems, similar reading interests, but we've already suggested books to one another that the other just hadn't read, had no awareness of. And um, I think that's fun. I think that sense of discovery is really, you know, one of the best parts of a life in reading. And um, I'm very excited to to dig into it and uh, chat with you about it, Lori. Yeah. And Tom, I guess we'll be uh, letting people see uh, not only the titles that we talk about, but a little bit of a preview about what's coming up on our Substack channel, correct? That's correct. So that will be in uh, the podcast notes. You'll be able to click there and see what's coming up. One of the other things that we will be doing on the Substack is creating something of a matrix of the titles we talk about. Um, as booksellers, it's almost impossible for us to talk about a book without relating it to other books. So as we dig into um, these various titles, we will also be bringing up the one, the books that kind of come to mind or that we feel resonate with them. And I don't know, I think it'll make for a really interesting, um, an, an, an interesting approach and visual way of thinking about books, thinking about how they intersect. And I'm really looking forward to when um, the same book appears in different episodes and how that then kind of creates a uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon um, across uh, backlist titles. Yeah, I love just following some of those rabbit trails that um, is the most exciting thing about reading, if you ask me, is just kind of, um, you know, how one book will lead to another and you'll just kind of get lost in and perhaps not even remember like why you even started reading a particular author or looking at a particular theme because um you'll be nine books down the road already <laughs> and um it's just a it's just a wonderful serendipitous thing and we thought it would be fun to try to kind of put some plot points on there so you know that you could maybe 
follow some some titles and and see how one one title begets another i guess absolutely and yeah that's been that's led to some of the best reading experiences of my life just even knowing that i mean knowing that r- certain writers are friends and then suddenly you read the other author that you know you have an author you love you read their friend's book it's a wildly different book but all of a sudden it's opened up this whole new genre or a whole new approach to writing to you um yeah it's it's a really wonderful experience and yeah i i think i think we're gonna have a lot of fun on this i think we're gonna go some in some interesting directions um i think it'll be very interesting when we come across a book that uh one of us recommends that the other doesn't really enjoy as much. I think that'll be a bit, hasn't happened yet, but it's early days. Um, but yeah, I, this is going to be, it's, it's going to be an interesting, uh, an interesting journey we're going to go on and um, we're hoping that you all enjoy it and, and join us for it. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. So uh, in just a moment, uh, we're going to be talking about John Crow's Devil by Marlon James. Talk to you guys in a second. So the first recommendation was mine to recommend to you to read um, the book by Marlon James. It's his debut work. It's called John Crow's Devil. And I think you read it. So tell me what you thought. Um, I'm actually, in a way, so terribly mad I haven't read this before. Um, So one of the ways we did this was we sent each other a list of just backlist titles. Um, and kind of pick out which ones we haven't read or which ones jump out at us. And I mean, frankly, I've always meant to read Merlin James and I just hadn't done it. So this seemed like a, a fantastic opportunity to do so. Um, this is, is a shockingly good book. I mean, this this is, for this to be a debut is really, frankly, mind-blowing. I mean, this ranks among the top debut novels I've I've ever encountered that I've ever never heard of and i'm yeah i i'm i'm frustrated i hadn't read it before uh it's the kind of book that can shape like future reading in such a significant way um and i'm pretty much going to be running off to the store to get all the rest uh of his books um yeah it's it's an incredible novel um incredibly i mean just so assured in its structure. Um, his pacing is phenomenal. Uh, he does this really, there's so many things to, to, to dig into this one, but I mean, one, one of the things that struck me about two thirds of the way through is that the novel was speeding up and not just in the sense of, of the action and, and the movement and building to a climax, but even even how the prose was working seemed to be accelerating. Um, and in some ways, I think he was using a little bit less dialect as it moved along, or that he'd done the di- the balance of dialect and non-dialect descriptive language in such a way that y- the reader flowed with it that much faster, so that as the action picked up and as more as more and more was revealing itself, and, and that in and of itself is amazing. The fact that it continues to like peel back like an onion. Um, yeah, it's it's a really incredible, um, really. I'll say this too: really difficult, really upsetting, but really incredible novel. Well, maybe we should back up a little bit and tell the readers 
um, the basic premise of the book. Um, so it's a town in Jamaica, uh, which is where Marlon James is from. And they, it, they are kind of, um, uh, I would say it feels like the, it's an insular town to me, but they have a preacher. They nickname him the rum preacher who is the preacher at the local church that everyone goes to on Sunday mornings. And he's basically a drunk. Um, and he doesn't do a good job of, of preaching or, um, kind of, uh, counseling his congregation or anything. He's, he's always drunk and he, he humiliates himself too in the, in the community, you know, shows up, um, half dressed and passed out. And then one day, um, this guy came, a self-proclaimed apostle and just comes into the church kind of like a, almost like a superhero, like, like ultra powerful, um, and just comes in and, and takes over the church, kicks out the rum preacher and, and really cast a spell on this small community. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that in the early part of the novel that um, is said is that Bly does not Bly does not cast judgment upon the town the that his you know his flock that I mean frankly m- most of whom aren't coming to church and weren't even really coming to church when he got there but were certainly not very much coming to church after he established himself to be an alcoholic um, and, and, I mean more than an alcoholic I mean like a straight up drunk who was you know showing up to funerals and services um, three sheets um, falling asleep in the street etc but he wasn't casting any judgment on them for what they were doing for their infidelities for um you know frankly their their faithlessness as far as far as that could be extended and in the same way they tolerated and didn't cast too much judgment upon him it was just more or less an acceptance of a a a really stagnant status quo um i mean i think to describe this town as a bit of a backwater would be a, a good way of putting it and there is that sort of marshy stillness at the outset of the novel that you know it really starts to change over time um yeah apostle uh, so the pastor's name is pastor Bly. apostle york shows up and you know it's made very clear um that there's something yeah supernatural about him um it's constant it's said right from the beginning that um york wears these red and black robes with this and has this unkempt hair but there's no wind and yet his robes are billowing and his hair <laughs> is swept back. Um, and York shows up, beats the hell out of the preacher, um, calls an abomination, antichrist, throws him into the street. And that sort of shocking moment starts to energize and bring people in just to see what this new thing is about. And there is a charisma and a attraction um, that uh york is bringing to them and slowly but surely he creeps them further and further away from uh a be- frankly a, be- a belief in jesus to a belief in in york um and the effects on the town uh this shift into a much more cult-like atmosphere is really intense really something um but Bly just doesn't doesn't just disappear um Bly is in many ways reborn by this and starts to become um, uh, quite the 
counterpoint to what York is doing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it, one of the neat things about this novel is that it, it isn't just a examination of uh, faith. I mean, it's also an examination, uh, I mean, of misogyny, uh, of abuse. Um, there, I, I looked at some of the reviews of the novel after I finished um, that came out at the time, and there's a lot of discussion of this as also a, an examination of uh, post-colonial Jamaica um, and the effects of colonialism on, on, a, on a society. And I mean, I don't know enough about that to really, to really speak to it, but I think that points to how much Marlon James accomplishes in this novel, that it, it's almost got a little bit of an urtext quality to it, where everything is there. I mean, whatever you want to pull out of it, is available to you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's right. Um, the, I find it interesting, you know, you've got this bigger than life character, the apostle, and then you've got, um, pastor Bly, the rum preacher, also a major character, but the depiction of the town as a community and then also individual members, I think is really interesting. There's a, there's a sentence early on in the book where it talks about, you know, why did the community tolerate this drunk um, preacher for so long? And it, it's something along the lines that, well, if, if he was drunk and so kind of diminished himself, then, then he wasn't going to be sitting in judgment of them um, and what they were doing wrong and some of the sins they were committing or whether or not they were um, Christian enough or, or what they were doing with their lives. And, and you really do get that sense that, like you said, they're not particularly churchy people. Um, But certainly after the apostle comes and starts really being accusatory of them, you know, talking to them about how sinful they are. And of course it's a manipulation. It's part of his, you know, mind control over them, but they really, they really fall for it. They really kind of, um, I think are already susceptible to someone like this. And then he just takes full advantage of it. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of ways the apostle is offering them, I mean, he's offering them more. I mean, he's offering them something else and something beyond, some, you know, just the, their day-to-day lives. And, and that's attractive. And as the attraction grows, he empowers the people he needs to empower to help enforce, you know, this new order. Um, I mean, it's also interesting in the sense of, um, I mean, on the, I guess on the post-colonial point, there, there is a bit uh, very early on um, discussing trying to remember precisely where I think it's the second or third chapter where they're they're really kind of talking about what this town is where it is and how it developed and the shift from master to money as the you know as the overriding controlling force and that there's one man in town who owns all of it who attempted to rename the town um from Gibea to Garveyville his last name um which has so many tones of um what is it, Potterville and It's a Wonderful Life. Um, yeah. that, uh, I mean, as tones of that, also the fact that Garvey is the man's last name and associations with Marcus Garvey are is just really fascinating. Um, but that name doesn't stick because the folks know their time is Gibea, which in itself 
has very specific and you know very explicit ties to uh, the Old Testament and um, actions taken in Israel. Um, I mean, this is just these are the rabbit holes that he's inviting you to go down as as he's but as he's telling this absolutely fantastic uh, tale. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I actually took myself down a rabbit hole and lost the thread <laughs> ever so slightly. That's all right. Rabbit holes are cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 also interesting. I mean, I, I was commenting at the start of how much I wish I'd already read it, but um, in talking to this book uh, about this book with uh, my wife, she, you know, I'd already said a few things about what was going on in it. Um, and when I started to tell her, like, frankly, gush about how much I, I love it, um, she asked, is it, is it especially interesting to have read this in the wake of the pandemic? And she wasn't even talking just about COVID, but everything associated with it, all the upheaval, everything that we're, we're dealing with and living through now. And the fact that we're, we're this is a novel about, frankly, um, someone who becomes more, I mean, frankly, becomes a cult leader. Um, when you have a lot of what's happening online um, among teenagers, I mean, it's it's wild. I mean, it, 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 in some ways, these are things that have always been with us, um, but they become they seem to be becoming even more, um, or at least in my awareness um, or my focus, more um, rampant and um, pertinent right now. Um, so yeah which is, I think, really quite fascinating as well. There's a, um, I think that the writing style is, is great. Um, and if you like the writing style, I think you'll like a lot of James' work because he kind of uses this Jamaican patois that I think has um, kind of a rhythm to it. Um, it. It almost has a beat to it. And I think that um, it's, it's it carries you along, but it also it, it feels really real. Like you get into the setting and into the characters' heads through the way that he writes the language. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is. Um, I'm trying to remember. He wrote the novel. He's a crime novelist, but his um, novels are always classified as literary fiction. Um, contemporary. Is it Richard Price? Um, no. There's a novelist who's often praised for his um, dialogue and that his dialogue on the page that you can't simply recreate spoken word as dialogue on the page. It doesn't work that way because it's being read into someone's head. So you actually have to alter it a bit in order for it to really work and really feel natural. And James absolutely crushes that, like absolutely nails that down. Um, He's also really remarkably good at, you know, the sort of, quick one-liner um so like about halfway through the book um there a mob attacks someone basically um but he has this one line where after they've completed their attack um they're all stunned at what they do and he follows that up with while rage could be communal guilt was always personal and that sort of movement that he accomplishes from this moment this moment in action where the like people became a person a mob but then they split apart again and just sort of the the yeah the the way that they're exploding outwards and their emotions and reactions is really really fascinating um i underlined that 
that uh, sentence too, because it, yeah, it, it, it does, it really rings true as, as you're reading it. There is, um, there's black magic in this uh, novel too, which James also deals with a lot in his, his other works. But um, the character of Lucinda, I think is really interesting. She's, she's a woman that, um, for lack of a better term, I guess you'd say she's the church secretary and she, Mm -hmm. she is under pastor Bly and she continues in that role when the apostle comes, but she also has this sexual attraction to the apostle and she's constantly kind of guilty about that on the one hand, but can't help herself on the other. And she lives kind of a, a double life. They, she's got what she calls the day Lucinda and the night Lucinda. The night Lucinda is like practicing black magic that she learned from her mother. And then the day Lucinda obviously is administering all to all these things that she has to do in the church to get ready for services and the like. But I thought her character is, is really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the primary attractions she has to Bly is Bly's supernatural quality. The fact that, like, I mean, we haven't touched on this quite yet, but um, John Crow is a a bird and the hordes of them arrive to mark the arrival of the apostle. Um, So the supernatural is made clear from jump um, when it comes to the apostle. And I think, Lucinda sees in the Apostle a merger of those two sides of herself, the day and the night. She sees you know, a man who is leading the, the flock, leading the congregation, who is not just a pastor, he's an apostle. He's something something more, but he also clearly commands something beyond himself. Um, and, the, and throughout the novel, there are flashbacks is the wrong way of maybe flashback is an appropriate way of putting it, um, where it moves back a bit in time to detail some of the characters and their upbringing, because this is a small town. They all know each other. They've all known each other forever. So there are petty rivalries. There are outright hatreds that aren't even built on anything, Some, I mean, sometimes quite substantial and sometimes completely insubstantial. But that's just how how it is when you know people for that long and you live in that sort of close quarters. Um, so, I mean, as he, as he does that, he really details how Lucinda comes into the church, how she was taught by her mother and what she put herself, what she herself put a lot of the ceremonies, a lot of the traditions that she was applying in, her, in the nighttime um, to try and, change her life, change her world and how it didn't happen. And I think that's also, I mean, Lucinda in many ways is a person for whom life never quite took off and never quite worked. Um, Her physical appearance is constantly referenced by other characters um, throughout the book. Um, Yeah. I mean, she's, she's an interesting one in that she drives so much of the action of the novel, her, but she doesn't, in some ways seem to, I mean, at least in the present, seem to have as much agency. She's almost always working on some, uh, for someone else to someone, I mean, or at least, yeah, in the present day she is. As a young woman, she was trying to change her life and it didn't work. So 
I find, yeah. I mean, but this is also just an indication of like the richness of the characters outside of this tension between, you know, the the pastor and the apostle. Um, the widow Greenfield um, is also, I mean, and again, getting back into naming, her name's Greenfield and a lot of what takes place around her has to do with nature, with, yeah, it's, it's a stunning book. Um, I think it's also really interesting and complex, the widow's relationship with Lucinda. Um, they have mm-hmm. a history um, and a past that's that's quite troubled. And the widow, being a widow since her husband died, is, is kind of a recluse, but she takes in um, Pastor Bly when he's thrown out of the church. She, she kind of picks him up and cleans him off and and takes care of him and, and tries to help him in some ways get sober. Um, and I don't want to give the ending of the book away, but the widow also plays a prominent role at the very end of the book too, which I think is um, is interesting because with all of this talk of, of sin and retribution and explicit and implicit biblical references, um, you know, you're thinking about redemption, you know, who's, who's getting redemption after this horror that's been brought on to this town because, you know, it gets very violent. Um, they start, they start killing each other in the apostle's name. Um, and it's, it's something that, I feel that the widow does get redemption in the end. Um, So while there's not a lot of happiness in in this book, perhaps it's kind of dark. um, There is some redemption in it too, I find. Yeah. It's, I mean, the widow is also interesting in that. um, And and James makes a point of mentioning this enough times that I think, I think there might be something that he's trying to get across. Um, She owns her house. Every house in town is owned by um, Mr. Garvey. But when she got married, her husband, who was not from the town, um, bought the house from Garvey and gave it to her as her wedding gift. So it's interesting that she's a recluse, but she's, I mean, she is outside in so many ways. She's Mm. removed herself from the society, but she's also not beholden to the landlord the way that everyone else in town, everyone else's house belongs to him on some level however he chooses to to exercise that right um yeah and she's I mean, not beholden to the apostle either and she's not beholden to the apostle um i mean it's it's really I, I i read a thing this morning that i hadn't seen before the book was rejected like 68 times or something like that Lori, what in the hell how is that <laughs> I don't know. You hear stories like this all the time about books being rejected. Um, I was reading a review of a, um, a an Irish writer's uh, latest novel uh, today, and they said that you know his first novel, Donald Ryan's, was was rejected, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of times too before he got published. I I don't know. I don't know how these things happen. I guess. I'm glad I'm glad James persisted though, right? I mean it was no, absolutely it was Akashic Press, uh, a small press mm-hmm. that that published him. And thank God they did because, you know, it's it's an important 
book. He's an important voice. And then, of course, he's gone on to have just a spectacular career. Yeah. And he's with big um, publishers now. So I was wondering, what books jump out at you in terms of interesting comps or things that that resonates um, with for you? I mean, I will say that when I first started it, um, Catherine Dunn's Geek Love jumped out ah. at me a little bit. I mean, I think there's a little bit, I think less so as the novel goes on, but initially there's a little bit of the atmosphere of the grotesque that's um, playing out in the early part of the novel and also sort of that cult-like feeling. Um, more recently, I think Hurricane Season by Fernanda Melchor, that sense of like perpetual, almost soupy foreboding um, that like, you know, a really, I was here in Chicago, a really like humid, brutal August day makes you feel like, you know, everyone's out to get you and the world's coming down around you and nothing and nothing tastes right. Um, that was definitely uh, playing out quite a bit, I thought. Um, at least it felt that way a bit. Um, and the last one that jumped out at me specifically was uh, The Power and the Glory, uh, Graham Greene. Um, ah. Especially with uh, Pastor Bly's trajectory. Um, yeah, I think I mean that that also just really th those three just sort of yeah I think I think there's something interesting happening um re like res I mean not even like they're not even clean cops they're just they just resonate well they're the kind of things that are sort of picking at the the same wounds going after the same material but but what what jumps to mind for you I love this question because I seem to really like this type of of big sin and redemption kind of kind of story. So um one that really pops out to me is um Mario Vargas Llosa's The War of the End of the World. Have you read that? I haven't. No. It's about it's about a cult. Uh, it's actually historical fiction, a real cult that took place in Latin America. And it's again kind of a crazy crazy person like the apostle that just kind of uses religion in a very manipulative way and gets these people in this town to, to follow him. And, um, it's, it's a really good read. I've got a, I've got a troubled relationship with Vargas Losa. Um, I like, uh, very much some of his older works, some of his more recent, I don't care for. But another comp, uh, and another book that I absolutely love is uh, Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom. Mm -hmm. There's just something about um, the character of the apostle and um, and his evilness that, and and I think James's language is a little bit Faulknerian as well. I Faulkner wasn't usually using Jamaican patois, but but there's there's something about the way. I think both men write and especially how they write about these big, these big issues of, you know, of good and bad and evil and having just like a, a very controlling, almost superhuman um, presence that kind of warps other people and warps a town. So those are two that I thought of. I mean, it's, it's, the Faulknerian bit, like I, I've seen mentioned elsewhere, um, the back of my copy. Um, so when 
when you recommended this one, um, I ran to uh, Powell's in Chicago, which is actually different from the Powell's out on the West Coast, but connected, long story. Anyway, um, I mean, they're not connected. If I said connected and, and anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, just like inside Chicago bookstore baseball. Um, but so the copy I have is the um, UK uh, One World edition. And um, on the back of it, it describes it with, with languages taught as classic works by Cormac McCarthy and a rich, richness reminiscent of early Toni Morrison. And I mean, the Toni Morrison bit, I 100% see. The Cormac McCarthy, I actually see far less of, except that, um, did you ever read The Orchard Keeper by McCarthy, his first novel? No, I so, haven't. It very much reads like someone, I mean, it's good. And I think it's, I don't know, Blood Meridian's amazing, but it's probably my one of my favorites of McCarthy's work. And I don't like or don't really enjoy a ton of his work. Um, but The Orchard Keeper is very much him almost doing Faulkner. And that connected to, like, so that's where I see it being like, early Cormac McCarthy before he stripped ever started stripping and stripping and stripping his language down um and going for more like the occasional explosive pyrotechnic bit um that's where I could see um James's uh language intersecting and that I think kind of ties it back into the Faulkner bit as well I mean just stylist there is something uh, tonally very um similar uh, across what they're doing um yeah. I, I, you said something just a second ago that, do you think the apostle is evil? Yes. I'm not, see, I'm not, and maybe it's just because I've only just read it and haven't had as much time to reflect on it. And I'm sort of still in, in the throes of it. I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, absolutely most of what he does is evil. Um, but I don't know. There's also, it's interesting because he is, in fact, I mean, the novel establishes he is, in fact, supernatural. Like there are he is capable of things. And he says he he explains how he learned to do these things. But he's also he's also a victim at the same time. And that makes it really I mean, and, and that's a thing that like maybe I'm giving a little too much away. But that that really colors my ability to say wh where he is falling here. and. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he, it's interesting. I think in a way, maybe he's, he's almost too much. He's almost become too much of a monster or monstrous. Whereas in some ways, I think Bly is almost too human. Um, his frailty, which is also where, for me, in my head, it connects back to the power and the glory and the failure of that priest to be a priest for most of the novel. Um I don't know. I don't know. That, I think that's an interesting one. I, I'd be curious. I'd be curious for folks who other folks who have read it or folks who read it after listening to this, what their take is on that and whether I'm potentially and very much could be being a way too forgiving of. Um, I, I, I almost just wonder whether or not you can call him a monster, whether you can call him evil or not. Well, I I can call him evil because you're while you're right, he is a victim and some horrible things happen to him, but he's very intentional about what he's doing. Um, he, he's out for vengeance with a capital V. Um, right. and 
he will pull anyone down, whether or not that they were complicit in the original thing that happened to him when he was younger that that made him a victim and also induced him to seek this vengeance. So I, yeah, I don't really see much redeeming quality in him at all. Yeah. I, I, I'm probably just going like, in, I'm just probably like tripping myself semantically over it. Cause I also feel like calling him a monster is also, which I just did is probably also incorrect and is stripping away too much agency from him uh, of like what he chose to do and what he chose in some ways to become. Uh, it's an interesting one, but I think that's also, I mean, that frankly is part of the excitement of a book like this, right? Like it, it spurs on conversation and contemplation of, uh, of that sort of thing of, of what can we hold people to and why? Um, yeah. Will you read yeah, more is, Marlon James? Yes, very much so. I mean, yeah, this is, this is a hell of a book. Um, and I, I, I'll say it again for this to be a debut is, I mean, frankly, a lot of authors debut novels are not the first novel they wrote, but for this to be the first one that James got published, um, my God, this, this is just an absolutely incredible, stunning novel that, I mean, every, Every bookstore should have it on its shelves, I think. I don't think there are too many that shouldn't, um, outside maybe a kid's bookstore. Um, that might be a bit inappropriate. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 an incredible, incredible book. Well, it's certainly his shortest book by far. Um, he's got some real doorstoppers um out there. And of course, I think I think I'm correct in saying that he's still probably most famous for a brief history of seven killings. Um yeah. And that that is a big book too. But he's um he's a wonderful author. And so I'm so glad that you liked it. Yeah, thank you for recommending it. And uh I hope I'm hoping that one uh next episode we discuss the one I recommended, you like it as much as uh I like this one. Otherwise I'm gonna feel like I'm gonna have to play some catch up. Should so. we should we tell uh which one uh you recommended for me? Sure. Um, I, I recommended, uh, Corn Wolf by, uh, Tristan Egolf. Uh, he was a, uh, young American writer. This is, I don't know, this is probably slightly shorter than his debut novel, though it's by no means a short novel. Um, and it, uh, takes place in the Pennsylvania, um, Amish <laughs> country, um, in the U.S., uh, and may or may not involve a, uh, werewolf. Um, so... Maybe slightly different uh, change of locale and, and change of pace, but um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited to talk about it next time and and hear what you think about it. I'm really excited uh, to talk about it too. And as I've told you, um, I grew up in Pennsylvania and lived and lived in Pennsylvania for the first twenty one and a half years of my life. So uh, my family's still there. So I'm really looking forward to talking about um, his perspective on that on that area and talking about the book. So until next time, Tom. Right, take care, Lori.
Okay, Lori. So uh, now we're going to talk a bit about, or actually, this is the beginning of a lot of conversation about um, Javier Marias. Um, uh, Javier Marias Franco, uh, Spanish novelist, uh, was born September 20th in 1951 uh, and died of pneumonia uh, this past September 11th, so just shy of his 71st birthday. Um, in his life, he was a prolific, frankly, novelist, short story writer, essayist, um, and in many ways, one of the more important writers in my own reading life, um, which is something that kind of brought us together a bit and a huge part of why this podcast is happening the way it's happening. And not only that, but why it has the name it has. But we'll, we'll get to that portion in, in just a moment. Um, Marius was the son of Julian Marius Aguilera and Dolores Franco Minera. Um, Julian Marius was a philosopher, um, sided with the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. He was one of the pupils and kind of chief pupils of the philosopher Jose, Jose Ortega y Gasset. Um, Marius was part of the Generation of 36, which is uh, the name assigned to writers, poets, thinkers um, that were all working um, in that period of Spanish history. Uh, most, if not all of whom, um, frankly, had to find occupation outside of Spain uh, in the wake of the Civil War. Um, Marius was among those. Uh, he taught extensively in the United States, in the United Kingdom, um, actually taught at Wellesley for a bit at the same time that Nabokov was there, which is a fun little note in literary history that uh, Javier, uh, in traveling, uh, to visit with his father um, was at some point a few blocks away from Nabokov, which is, I don't know, it's just fun. Uh, Marius is also the author of a book, The History of Philosophy, which is still in print, uh, still available through Dover. Um, for those that know Dover editions, they're typically reprints of classics that are pretty cheap. Not, no, they're, they're made fine, but they're not the best paper in the world. Um, this is one of those rare ones that's actually relatively expensive because it is a brick of a book. Um, but it is a fascinating um, look at hi, uh, philo philosophical history up through basically Jose uh, Ortega y Gasset. Um, Maria's uh, Javier's, uh, and just a quick note here, um, Javier Marias was actually born Xavier uh, Marias, uh, and that is something that gets pulled into um, his association with Redonda, but again, more on that in a moment, um, but went by Javier um, professionally um, for most of his life, uh, though when he did sign books, and I have a few books signed by him, he would uh, change up how he signed it um, with almost every copy. Um, That's fun. Very, yeah, very indiscriminate. It's it's very neat. Um, one of my favorite things in my collection of books that I'll never, ever get rid of. Um, Marius's mother, uh, Dolores Franco Manera, uh, was a translator, uh, also a pupil of Ortega y Gasset, which is uh, one of the ways in which she met Julian. Um, her brother, um, Jesus, was a prolific filmmaker in Spain, um, and he's someone we'll actually talk about later on in the series as we get into uh, some of the, well, some of the film-based uh, film novel that uh, Marius uh, does, because I think there's there's quite a bit that he's pulling from his, um, not even pulling from, but like referencing in his uncle's life there. Um, he also worked uh, for his uncle at one point. Um, 
Uh, Doris uh, Franco Manera lost two brothers in the Civil War. Um, one was killed, uh, another disappeared, um, assumed dead. Um, Maria's uh, Javier, it's really going to be kind of, this part's going to be tricky. So when I say Maria's, let's simply assume I'm talking about Javier and uh, not Julian. Um, Maria's writes about uh, when his father was arrested uh, towards the end of the Civil War and that it was his mother um, with whom he was not, Julian was not with yet. They they were friends, but they, they were not in a relationship at this point. Um, uh, Dolores showed up and um, basically demanded Julian's release. And at that point in the war, it would, could have been just as likely that Julian Marius would have disappeared, never been heard from again. And everything we're talking about now would not have taken place. Um, this is sort of a, a, a theme in some of, or a lot of Marius is writing the happenstance the the randomness uh, of life that you know walking down one side the sidewalk on one side one day can lead to outcomes completely different from doing it on the other side um so uh they're in a, i mean they're a very interesting couple in that respect um maria's had five brothers uh two of whom i believe it's two uh died quite young um, which had a significant impact on his mother and shows up throughout uh, uh, Marius's work. Um, so Marius started writing very early. Um, he began his first novel at the age of 17, uh, Los Dominios del Lobo, um, translated to the Dominions of the Wolf, though it has never been officially, uh, trans it's never been published in translation. Uh, he has a few books like that. Um, this one came out when he was 20. Um, and between the age of 20 and shortly, like posthumously, uh, his last book, you know, or last written book, um, he wrote something along the lines of 16 novels, uh, three short story collections and novellas, um, and numerous, numerous essays, uh, most of which appeared in El Pais and were published over here in the States in the Three Penny Review, The Believer, um, frankly, all over the place. Yeah, I, um, think, he, I think he kept that column up for the Spanish newspaper, I think it ran like every Sunday for several years. Yeah, it was an incredible, I mean, for for how he writes and the style in which he writes, even his essays have a little bit of that meandering, um, you know, self-reflective, reflexive style to it. For him to be able to churn out on a weekly basis an essay, I, I don't know, I, I'm someone who doesn't even write, who struggles with the idea of writing. Um, so just to just to produce work like that is really, I mean, I don't know, it's quite something. He had a very active, very fertile mind and tons of interest. He, uh, and he writes a lot about film, um, which again, I think dovetails into uh, his relationship with his uncle. Um, but also, frankly, I mean, that's also not an unusual European writer thing, right? I mean, lots of European writers spend a lot of time, especially from that generation when film was... And still, I mean, still is perceived as such an important art form, but it was, there was a vibrancy to the criticism, the discussion around it that I'm not sure, or at least isn't as present in, I'm probably talking myself into a pretty, I'm going to get hit pretty <laughs> hard for this one, but I don't think it's quite as present in the, I mean, it's certainly not in the mainstream, mainstream um, American criticism. Um, are you going to find uh, a tackling of uh, film? Uh, in the same way as I think happens to a degree in Europe. I mean, it certainly is there, 
but um, on the scale of it, it, it's very different. I also just don't, I think you're more likely to find a major American novelist writing for a small journal or the occasional piece in the, you know, in the New York Times um, than have a regular column that often brings up film and other art forms. Um, yeah, again, a lot of a lot of these pieces that were in the um, Spanish newspaper are collected in translation um, in Between Eternities and other writings, which I've been enjoying a lot. And that's um, that's also uh, readily available in the U.S. And I believe it's it's also translated by, um, yeah, Margaret Joel Costa, who's translated almost all of his work in the U.S., yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's something that we'll be talking about, I think, down the line a little bit uh, is, I mean, translation as practice. Marius was an incredibly well-respected translator, um, won a major prize in Spain for his translation of uh, Stern's Tristram Shandy, um, which shows up quite a bit in his novels, even. Um, have you read Tristram Shandy, Lori? You know, chance? I have not, but every time that I read about... Uh, Marais, or, you know, think about him and think about the translation work that he did. I always say, I need to read Tristram Shandy. Have you? So I dipped into it. Um, I have not read it in its entirety. I can see why someone like Marius would absolutely love it. And I could also see what a beast of a project it would be to move that in into any other language. Um but yeah, it's a, frankly, like given how much of Marius I've read and how sort of obsessive I am around him, it's a really weird um, gap in my knowledge and maybe something that I'll tackle in the course of this project uh, in the background is actually getting through Tristram Shandy. Um, Did you enjoy yeah, it, the um, parts that you read? Yeah, no, they were, it, they were very neat. Uh, I really did like it. Uh, I think I was moderately intimidated by um, the size of it at the time, and it was just a very different way of reading. And I don't know that my my, my brain was quite ready to to take that on, and frankly, derail all my other you know reading projects at the time. You know, being a buyer for a bookstore, you're often reading so much and trying to read in, across so many genres that. Uh, larger projects, at least when I was a buyer and, and doing that, I just couldn't commit to too many huge books. I just didn't feel like I had the time. Yeah. That's probably a failing on my end, but, um, yeah, not a it failing, was just not a, to make it. Not a failing of practicality, but you know, yeah. I, I'm, I'm always impressed with what a big role this book seems to have played in Marius's life. I mean, it's, if, to coin that, you know, it's his book of books, basically. Um, yeah. The, his, you know, very pivotal. So um, I don't know, maybe it is a project we should, we should take on. Yeah. Well, at least, at least one of us. So maybe we'll flip a coin after this to figure out which one of us. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Has, has, has to bear, has to bear the brunt of that. Um, well, I mean, I, so I think, I think that's a pretty good, like quick hit uh, on his life, on some of his work. Um, as I said, his first book published at 20, he published extensively throughout the rest of his life. Um, a few of his novels have not been translated into English. Uh, he get, he gave a few interviews in which he said that he did not want them translated. He did not think that they were necessarily good enough or, or just that he just wasn't quite, he w he did not think that they needed to be translated in English, that they, that they could stay where they were. Um, and these are the early novels, right? The three earliest yes. novels. Or early-ish yes. novels. Yeah. Right. Um, 
just getting a quick look at my notes. Um, so, but Maria spent most of his life living in Madrid, and Madrid plays a major role um, in his works. Um, I mean, to call him a Spanish novelist, it's not just that he was writing in in Spanish. I mean, he was writing about Spain, even when his characters um, were in another environment, uh, particularly the UK. Um, they were in many ways defined by where they came from. Almost, I mean, almost always Magellanos. Um, almost always, you know, referring back to some aspect or the effect of the Civil War, um, and that plays out across his across his works. I mean, he we just mentioned his translation practice, but um, almost all, I mean, up, up until more recent, uh, some of the more recent um, novels, um, even there, there are they're translators. Uh, typically, the protagonist is a translator, often in a you know some sort of fish out of water scenario to a certain degree. Um, but they're also sometimes, uh, he's sometimes writing spy novels. Um, even the ones that aren't, ex- you know, expressly a spy novel have a level of intrigue and a consideration of the spoken word versus the written word and, and what we reveal or don't reveal about um, ourselves to the other. Um it's really interesting. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, his parents' experience in the Civil War and, and frankly, the Spain that um, Marius uh, grew up in and what, what you could say, what you couldn't say, um, well, which Tom, makes for... Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to say, um, can I push on you a little bit about the the Spanishness of Marius? Because I think it's you're absolutely right. I I haven't read as... I haven't read him quite as thoroughly as you have, but you know the history of Spain and and from a more autobiographical standpoint, some of the some of the facts of he and his parents' life, you know, it, it definitely is is found in the novels. But I also feel like Moraes may have been a bit sensitive to this. Um, well, I won't say it's a criticism, but that he was a very English um, writer, that he was, you know, kind of um, preoccupied with all things um, British and English. And I wondered what your thoughts are on on that and how you balance the two. Yeah, I, I do think there is a, a real Anglophilia to Marius's thought and, and his interests. Um, I mean, I think part of that comes from his experience uh, teaching uh, at Oxford um, for a time. Um, I think it also just, uh, I think it also comes from where, how he was tackling um, writing and and thinking. Um, I, I don't know. I mean. It, you kind of you kind of caught me on that one a little bit, Lori. I'm I'm, try, I'm trying to process. Sorry, the, sorry. Process. No, we can, it's, it's we really can talk fun. about it later. Um, no, I I, I, I absolutely. Um, Marius is uh, pulling for, or dealing engaging with Britishness in a very specific way. Um, his you know probably his seminal novel, um, Your Face Tomorrow. Uh, it's basically taking place under the auspices of a a British spy agency, um, which is interesting for a Spanish writer to be writing about. Right. Um, So there's definitely a lot there. 
And yeah, I'll, <laughs> in, a, in a later episode, I'll have much, much cleaner thoughts on, on that specific I'll think point. about it too. It just came to mind when, you know, when you were talking about how, um, you know, how very much Spain, it, you know, you feel it in all of the books, but then, you know, I, I can't remember exactly in what places I've read it, but it, it did, it does feel like um, that I've read that that a lot of maybe mostly people in Spain felt like he was not that he was he liked the Brits more than he liked his own country. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it also go, comes into some interesting things with um, writing, you know, writers in Spanish um, like, I mean, like Bolaño, like uh, Frizan, um, who are you know from Chile and Argentina respectively, but are you know lived a good chunk of their adult lives uh, in Spain and you know saw themselves as being of their countries, but also writing in this larger Spanish context. I don't know that Marius would ever make such a claim for himself, but there is this very strong connection to Englishness and um, uh, of the world outside of Spain um, that you know permeates his work. So, yeah, that's a really interesting point. Well, I mean, so I I think this is a good point for us to kind of talk about how how we came to Marius and and why we are um, devoting so many episodes to to his works. So, I guess to clarify that point, the back end of this podcast podcast, the second half, um, is going to be a discussion of Javier Marius. Um, we have a pretty extensive. Um, breakdown uh, across uh, episodes where it's more or less going to take us about 10 to 12 episodes to, to dig into his work. Um, we'll be jumping around a bit. We're not taking chronologically. It's a little bit more thematic. So for instance, next uh, podcast, we'll be talking about um, his novel, All Souls, and his false novel, Dark Back of Time, and digging a little bit more into uh, Redonda. Um, and from there, we'll be kind of grouping uh, some of the novels and collections, novellas together. Um, yeah, tra tracing and, and once we get to a certain point, it'll, it'll get a bit more chronological, especially with the more recent novels. But yeah, we are spending uh, a lot of time talking about Javier Marias. Um, and I mean, for my part, um, I came to read Javier Marias when I first began bookselling uh, back in 2004. Um, came across a uh, article, I believe it was in The Guardian, talking about uh, the first volume and this Spanish novelist who I'd never heard of, um, his major work that was coming out across three volumes over the next few years, and um, was fascinated by the idea of what he was doing, um, went into the bookstore's uh, fiction section, found uh, All Souls, took it home, and was immediately just blown away. I, uh, it was like, I mean, yeah, I think it's fair to say it was like nothing I'd read before, or at least it affected me in a way that very few things had affected me quite like that. And I immediately started ripping through, um, his catalog, um, at that time, all published by new directions. And yeah, to this day, it, it, it it's a foundational part of my reading life. It's he's an author that I continually um, compare other writers to, be it their project, the, their goals, what they're attempting, um, which is also just, I think, a fascinating thing about Marius. He had something of a project going on. He was he was writing he was writing great fiction, 
but there was a consistent set of ideas that he was exploring that he was trying to you know get at in different ways through through his novels um building up to your face tomorrow um yeah so that that's that's how i came to marius that's why i think he's worth spending he's worth spending so much time on because i think about him all the time so you know let's 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 spend a lot of time talking about him i say but um how how about you Lori? what was how, how did you come to marius well it wasn't in any kind of um logical logical way and i guess it was probably about 10 years after you did um i had started um becoming interested in in small publishers and uh, writing some book reviews on some small press books. And um, at s- somehow I came to know um, that the great publisher New Directions, um, you know, had this um, three-piece well, trilogy, Your Face Tomorrow, um, by Moraes, and I purchased it. But it sat on my shelf for at least 12 years, I think, before I picked it up. I only read Your Face Tomorrow for the first time last year. Um, but I did I did read Moraes before that. Um, I think the first book that I picked up that and read by him was um, Thus Bad Begins, which I love that book so much. And, um, and that was when I started book selling. Um, so similar to you in that respect, and um, just fell in love with this world that he creates—a world of um, of really kind of interiority, where you really, really get inside the characters' heads. And I can't really think of anyone that does that quite the same as Moraes, but maybe the closest comparison I could say in a skillful way would be Henry James, who I know that Henry James can be, um, some people hate him and some people love him. Um, I'm more of the love camp, at least for most of what he does, but it's that kind of just taking, taking apart the way someone's thoughts evolve and the way that they, um, can kind of like change their perceptions. And you see us, you see the characters, the reader does as the perceptions change. And I think that's just really, really a unique thing. You get the sense that, that everything kind of slows down, at least for me, when I'm reading Moraes, I feel like my pulse (laughs) slows down in a good way. It's not like I fall asleep, but like, you're just, you're just moving through um, someone's perceptions in such a way that that it it really kind of makes sense and it's almost addictive i find i mean his books a lot of the books um especially some of the later ones are quite lengthy and they're quite dense but they're not difficult to get through you just have to like surrender yourself to them so um yeah after thus bad begins you know i started kind of reading um, just randomly through his catalog and, you know, some of the shorter earlier works, um, like, uh, Heart So White. And we did the infatuations for, um, my book club at the store and then Berta Isla, of course. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been, it's just been a wonderful experience. And, um, I feel very 
lucky in a way because I still haven't read all of them. So I still have, I still have some treats to, uh, to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, on the, on that particular point, um, I actually, I mean, this is, I got, I was, I'm a huge Belongio fan as well, but, um, uh, my sales rep gave me a arc, one of those old craft paper covered arcs of 2666 that are so rare now. Um, and I refused to read it because I did not want it to be over. I did not want the experience of reading Belongio to be over. So I'm, um, I'm very pleased that we have one, at least one more of uh, Marius to come in uh, Tomas Nevinson, which is publishing in May, which was another kind of kind of put in mind to us that may be talking about Marius now in the lead up to to uh, his final book um, being published uh, in English uh, made some sense. Um, one of the things I wanted to like loop back to though was the way that you were describing how he how he writes about thinking and how he writes about perception. Um, he writes these incredibly long, meandering sentences that whip you all over the place. Um, although whips try the wrong way, just gu- gently guides you through the um, protagonist's thought process. And and what's amazing about it is you can read, I don't know, 30 pages that go into history, go into reflections on the arts, um, and at the end of it, the the protagonist makes a decision, and this is all taking place in the second in the in the narrative time of the novel. Um, so he's really kind of almost trying to pull out all of the disparate threads of what you know what influences what we how we think and how we decide things, and just write it down on a page, um, which is a wild thing to attempt. But it's even wilder that he can do it and just do it beautifully. I mean, his prose is gorgeous. Uh, the way, the way he structures everything, um, and with such an incredibly tight hand. Um, I told you this previously, but, um, when the third volume of your face tomorrow came out, um, he did an event in New York and, um, I was at the time the events coordinator for bookstore in Chicago and was, you know, there was no way he was coming to Chicago. So, um, my, um, Pregnant wife and I flew to New York simply to see Javier Maria speak at the New York Public Library. And um, I mean, so this is also giving you an idea of the mania um, I I possess around this guy's writing. Um, But in the conversation, in the interview um, he he did, he was asked about the length of his sentences and, and, and how he does the, how he approaches this thought process. And his response was that he believes that time does not give time the time to be. And that just, you know, there was a combination of gasping and laughter in the audience when he said that, but it perfectly sums up what what he's doing. He is using the relative nature of time to really rip time apart and rip apart what someone is and what how someone comes to be, and then put it all back together and move them forward. And even if it's the most irrational action that happens next, the one that seems just completely bonkers, it makes sense somehow because of all these disparate threads that he has that he has highlighted, that he has, you know, uh, undone and then rewoven together. Um, and it's this constant act of uh, recreation that I think is so fascinating um, in in a lot of his work. Um, yeah, I think that the um, perhaps one of the best examples that. I can think of in terms of 
letting time have time is um, the first volume of uh, the trilogy, Your Face Tomorrow, where, you know, there's that, that scene at the professor's house um, one night. And, you know, there's a very long, digressive conversation with the professor, but then the professor goes to bed and the main character is is left alone in this house with the professor's library. And there were some things from the conversation that intrigued him. So he just decides to start looking through some of the books in the library. And that that night goes on in that book, probably for maybe 250 pages that one night, you know, maybe it's a seven hour period of time. But you, you don't really notice that that time hasn't moved forward because there's so much happening in this character's mind that he's trying to put his head around and connections that he's trying to make about the professor's past and what, what that guy's been doing and, and how he himself has been involved in it. And it's, um, it's, it's just mesmerizing. It's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's one of the, I mean, that is one of the amazing things is that you go through those 250 pages at the end it wraps and you realize, oh, what did I what did I just read? I just read 250 pages of a guy looking through a study. Like that's basically what you what what you did. Um, and that is and but it's it's marvelous, right? It's something like it, it's it, it gives you this moment of like, I mean, for me, it gave me this moment of almost like irrational joy that like he that he was able to pull this off, that he did this amazing thing and I loved every moment of it. And now because of how he wrapped it, it's making me go back through and think through everything I just read. Um, yeah, he's he's a remarkable writer. Um, and while there are obviously some you know very strong themes across all of his work that he's consistently dealing with and addressing, each one's, each one's different. He's doing... He is doing very some very different things, or at least structurally, genre almost genre wise, doing different things across his novels, which I think also makes makes for a really will make for a really fruitful discussion as as we dig into them. Um, I guess if but, I had to say, you know, one thing that I think, and just generally that kind of when I think about what his what his work is about, um, it's in a general sense, secrets. Like mm-hmm. there are, there's a secret or multiple secrets, I, th- I think, in every book of his that I've read, perhaps without exception. And it's kind of what that secret is and what the existence of the secret does to the people in the book that he just explores so wonderfully and in so many different situations and, and nuances that um, you never you – never I've never felt like I'm I'm reading the same book twice, but right. there are definitely some themes that you know are unmistakably Marais in yeah. the, in the book. I mean, and, and he absolutely plays with uh, what what size or scale or type of secret you're talking about. Sometimes it's just the interpersonal. Sometimes it's the political. I mean, he just really, yeah, he has he has a really interesting um, and. <laughs> quite quite facile way of of addressing that um like like you said uh in ways that never feel like he's going back to the well that he's he's doing the same the same book again and again um 
But one of the one of the things I want, so we are going to spend a lot of time talking about his books. Um, but I also want to, and we will get into this in the next episode in more depth, but we do need to address sort of the elephant in the room, which is the name of this podcast, which is Lost in Redonda. Um, Redonda is a something of a nothing spit of land in the Caribbean, uh, very near to Montserrat. Um, it's small. Uh, it ha- it's rocky. It has no value um, other than all the guano all over it that um, is makes it, at least in the 19th century, made it uh, somewhat useful for uh, phosphates and the like. Um, but uh, it does matter quite a bit in, uh, well, at least to me, I don't know how much it really ultimately mattered to Marius. I think a fair bit, but I'm not going to speak for, uh, you know, for the man. Um, Marius was the king of Redonda. Now, that obviously makes very little sense. Um, we will go into a lot of the ins and outs of this uh, next episode. But um, in a very brief summary, uh, in the 19th century, a British writer uh, claimed that he was uh, made the king of Redonda by his father. Um, this writer eventually passed along the kingship to his literary executor, who uh, eventually passed it on to another man, who eventually passed it on to Marius, after something something of this story gets included in his novel, um, All Souls. Um, again, it's meandering. It's weird. It's also weird because there are actually several rival um, kingship claims to Redonda. Um, but what I think is fun, or one of the things I think is fun, is uh, the idea that this Spanish writer um, styled himself as King Xavier the first of Redonda that he would give out a pri- he gave out a prize for a while that um, the award of which was a uh, duchy on uh, the in the kingdom of Redonda so you have people like Arturo Perez Reverte, um, Alice Monroe, Guillermo Cabrera Infante um, who are dukes and duchesses of Redonda so you have this I mean pra- imaginary literary kingdom that exists nowhere really but um yeah it is is connected to this writer who is just ah that is part of like i think for me reading all souls and encountering this idea of redonda and then looking into it a little bit and be like wait what the hell is is going on here um is a huge part of what influenced me to like just really dig into his work even further um so much so that when I thought I would eventually write something, which is unlikely to happen, I thought I would write a novel about the kingdom of Redonda. And I thought I would call it Lost in Redonda, um, playing off of uh, Lost in La Mancha. And it never happened. But when we were talking about this podcast, I threw this that name out as an idea. And Lori very generously said, that sounds great to me. Let's go with it. So here we are. We are... We are creating Lost in Redonda in podcast form um, and digging into Javier Marias' work and, you know, how Redonda play, plays into that to a certain degree. Um, yeah, for, for a man who spends so much time digging into identities and secrets and the things that you leave out of conversations to also be the king of this imagined island, I think is is pretty neat and a pretty, pretty fun little extra bit of a literary history almost. Yeah. I think that, um, I don't know. I, I, I like the name. I think it fits. Um, not only are we, you know, keeping your dream alive, Tom, but, um, (laughs) 
given that we're going to be getting lost in uh, in Marais, I think that it's a it's a it's a perfect name for the podcast. Yeah. So um, that is what we'll be doing um, on the back half of these podcasts moving forward. Um, next time we will talk about All Souls: Dark Back of Time and get a little bit more into uh, Redonda. Um, how exactly this precisely this all came to be. Um, and then, you know, we'll let you know what the next set will be after that. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to, I think we're gonna have a lot of fun, um, kind of celebrating and discussing, um, a really, really important writer. So I'm looking forward to it, Lori. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Bye.